see some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. It is Tuesday. It is December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor Day. And um, here we are. We've got a uh, pumping swell in the North Pacific hitting California and hitting Hawaii. And it's the opening day of the Billabong Pro Pipe Masters. David, good morning. Good morning, Scott. It's a December 8th is like such an important day. I can't tell you. It's more, I don't know, maybe it rings in Christmas. Maybe it's the beginning of Christmas. I was going to say it's more important than Christmas to me, but I think it also is kind of synonymous with Christmas. But this Pipe Masters kicking off December is a highlight in my year, every year. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, there's certainly excitement um, inside my stomach. I've got butterflies based on. I'm watching the Mavericks cam right now, and it's yeah. friggin' mental. It's is it? huge. Yeah, it's almost not paddleable. I mean, I'm sure guys are going to catch waves, but there's guys towing in that are absolutely killing it. But um, well, it's pretty mean. It's such a deep swell that it's. I mean, it's going to be hard for these guys to catch these waves. Uh, how much internal consternation do you have when the pipe masters is starting and the waves are pumping at home, like it out front for you? Um, re in regards to what missing some of the event while I yeah. surf. Yeah, exactly. I absolutely. Zero. Really? Oh yeah. I'd much rather be surfing. Well, I'd much rather be surfing too, but I, uh, I hate when swell aligns with the pipe masters is what I'm saying. Like I hate being in the water knowing that the pipe, because I look forward to the pipe masters all year long and it only, I mean, the total amount of viewing hours is maybe, I don't know, 16 to 20 for the whole year. And then I just hate missing it, you know? Well, you know, what's trippy is that yesterday I literally had the Surfline pipe cam on my large screen in my living room. It was insane yesterday. There was nonstop action. Oh, I know. I mean, it was mental. It was probably better viewing than what we're going to get today as far Maybe. as action. You know, like it might not be as, you know, the quality of the image might not be quite as good, but. Yeah. Um, quick, quick detour before we get into pipe, because we could spend the whole show talking about pipe. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Do you have any Pearl Harbor stories? <laughs> Pearl Harbor stories? I don't. <laughs> I was not there. I missed. I luckily, I, I got a, a bone spur deferment. Nice. But uh, no, I wasn't there. I don't so, have any stories. I've been on a plane. I used to go to Hawaii around this date every year, right around the 5th or the 6th. Yeah. For Surfer Magazine, we would all fly over. And uh, I've been on the plane when there was multiple guys going, you know, World War II vets going over for the for the ceremonies. Yeah. And, you know, the plane erupts. They always announce something and everyone claps and blah, blah, blah. It's cool. So, so my grandfather was there uh, as a child. He was born in Kauai and then he was on Oahu by the time he was eight years old. And he, he told me, like, he didn't really talk about it much when I was a kid, but that Hollywood movie, um, big blockbuster version of Pearl Harbor came out called Pearl, Pearl Harbor. And that, like, um, 
brought back a lot of memories for him. Like we went and watched that movie and afterwards he was like, holy cow, like it's all coming back to me. Like they did a phenomenal job with the film. Yeah. And I think some trauma probably came back too. But the story that he told was that uh, he was young. I think he was like eight or 10 at the time. And he actually hid in one of those claw uh, foot bathtubs like he and a sibling got in there and they turned it over upside down. So it was on top of them to protect them of debris. But when they saw the planes coming, he and his friends had never even seen airplanes before. Like they literally were like, Oh, what's that? Like, are these alien ships? It was just completely foreign. And then they started bombing things and it was pure pandemonium. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. That's pretty insane. Totally. Why, how come he had never seen airplanes before? Airplanes, seems to me that would be a, a pr- pretty much everyone had seen an airplane because it was kind of like a spaceship in and of itself. Like he had he never was, seen airplanes? No. So he grew up on Kauai really impoverished. His parents actually came over as indentured servants from Portugal. Mm. And he like literally, like they made a baby. I don't know that there was a lot, like he... I mean, they, they, made, they, they well, made a baby. I say it that way because they're indentured servants in the field. It's not like they're choosing into a loving relationship. It's like they right. literally like yeah. made a couple of kids. And so he was raised like essentially without parents and was living in a junkyard at a young age just because that was the only place he could find uh, shelter. And then the junkyard owner was like, you know, help feed him along the way. So I think being in Kauai maybe would have been the reason why he wasn't as exposed to planes as if he would have been if he was, you know, yeah. you know. but so then he ends up in Oahu and uh, yeah, was there for the bombing of Pearl Harbor and said it was pure pandemonium. And, you know, like some of the Japanese families that had been there for a really long time were just being beaten and killed in the streets as yeah. a result of the bombing. So it was really, really traumatic and scary. But, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this would be a good time to mention Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast, Supernova in the East is the latest one. And there's, I believe there's six different installments of Supernova in the East. Each one is about three and a half, four hours long. And it's, it's fascinating. So if, you, if you're into World War II history, not only Quiz David, that was your grandfather? Yeah. Quiz David on his grandfather, but um, check out Dan Carlin's Hardcore History as well. So how much prep do we do as compared to Dan Carlin? I, you know, for us, it depends show to show. Like, I actually have a huge show today, but it's, I almost feel like we're not going to be able to get to any of it. We're not. <laughs> and, and you got to go surf, and I got to well, go. I can wait. I mean, we can just do a normal size show because, um, I, you know. Whatever. Well, but no, but my point is Dan Carlin preps like a cr- like among all the podcasts out there, Dan Carlin preps harder than anybody. Right. He writes a three hour long script. Yeah, exactly. And I have a feeling he doesn't uh, record in one take. He probably no. flubs lines. So the editing involved in that three hour episode has got to be gnarly too. Yeah, for sure. And if, as you know, he... He has multiple sources. He cites so many sources and he reads from direct source. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Um, Okay. Again, before pipe, I'm going to go back to our Mount Rushmore conversation very quickly. Did you see Matt Warshaw's newsletter this week? I I was disappointed that they, he did not mention us that he just, 
went the other way and didn't. I thought it was an opportunity for him to mention the Spit podcast. But. Well, he said the way that he started was uh, the conversation of surfing's Mount Rushmore was a blip on social media this week, I think. Is that what yeah. it said? Yeah, something like that. I think you can actually uh, feel good that we are just referred to as the Zeitgeist. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, it's like what we're the conversation we're having. He doesn't have to mention it because it becomes part of the zeitgeist by sheer virtue of the fact that you and I are having the conversation. Yeah. Right. No, and I I don't think it was a slight either. I just think that that's probably how it came to him through social media. I know I sent him an email about it, and he and I jawed back and forth about who should be on it. And um, yeah, and I think he he has a podcast with the guys on the East Coast, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. The so sun, they Sunday probably, joint. yeah, the Sunday joint, which is a great podcast. Those guys probably picked up what we were talking about and then brought it to Matt. And that's probably where it took off. So Matt in his newsletter on Sunday night says surfing's Mount Rush. Oh yeah. Blipped on social media two weeks ago with the usual suspects nominated and debated. I swung in late with a vote for Gidget, but the big show uh, he basically said, I was complaining about the lack of criteria. Surfing's Mount Rushmore is too vague. Of course, Duke is a given. There are three other spots. Those three other spots, though, are wide open because of the lack of criteria. Should Hobie be considered as uh, along with the rest of the industrialists? If Dora makes it, should he get a clan hood? Sean Collins was a game changer, but you're going to put a numbers geek on Mount Rushmore? the pleasure I take in this kind of man boy list making is directly proportional to criteria specificity. If surfing's Mount Rushmore has a set of criteria, something along the lines of surfing talent multiplied by human value. That's made up of wisdom, decency, compassion, sense of humor. Then hand me a clean sheet of paper and a Sharpie. And let's begin with Pam Burridge. Sorry, Gidget Duke stick around. You're probably still in. But Pam was and still is a graceful, powerful, progressive, deeply chilled surfer. Uh, Frida Zamba was the rabbit-punching high performer from Pam's early heyday, while Kim Merrick was all deep flow state in pink and yellow. Pam, by design or chance, perfectly split the difference between Frida and Kim. Unfortunately, she didn't have much left over. with which to focus on winning world titles. I'd have to look it up, but during the 80s, I think Pam was 14 times runner-up to the world title. Nevertheless, she persisted. Mark Ocalupa's 1999 world title will forever be our sport's most satisfying, most righteous competitive comeback story, but Pam's title in 1990 is a hot second. And she knocked out pretty much every boss there is to get there, including drugs, alcohol, eating disorder, depression. Cliche but true, every hardship seemed to make Pam stronger, more centered, and more caring of others. She kept evolving. She never won another world title, but her surfing continued to improve for for years afterwards. Pam could outglam anybody in the sport, male or female, but by and large, she spent her adult life looking like the last girl out of the pond at Woodstock, happy and bedraggled. She's a smiling destroyer of surf world pieties, and in truth, she will never make it onto surfing's Mount Rushmore, but she was once called Mother Superior in a surf mag headline, and I will Twitter tackle anybody who says otherwise. Well, look, Matt's a 
Matt's a treasure for surf culture and for surf history. And, um, and the great thing is that he doesn't really, he doesn't hold back. He kind of doesn't care what anyone else thinks. And he's pretty, and he's obviously well-versed in it. So I think I've told you, um, I went on a surf trip once and Matt was with us, right? And we went to El Salvador. We got great waves. But along the way, like along the five-hour drive or whatever it was from the airport to the, the spots, I would just quiz the shit out of, out of Matt. And it's something that Matt doesn't really – at some point he just gets fed up with it, you know? But I would be like, well, how come this person's in the encyclopedia of surfing and this person isn't, you know? And what about him? How come to him, you know? And it's, and it's so um, – you know, it's kind of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Like if you, I just flipped open a, um, my encyclopedia of surfer, surfing, right? That Matt wrote, the encyclopedia of surfing. And there's some entries in here where you just, I just kind of go, okay, well, I, okay, I get it. But if you're going to put that in, then you have to put this in. Like, for instance, do you think Oman should be in the encyclopedia of surfing? As the a nation's, location? Yeah. No. Oman. No. Yeah. Well, it is. And if Oman's in, then why not like, you know, the interior of the Gulf of Mexico or something? Like that? I, I have a feeling with certain things like that, he had to, he had researched and written about Oman maybe for an article at some point. So that was already done. So you might as well just like include it. Whereas if you told him to submit one for the interior Gulf, he would have to go then research that. Yeah, I look, again, I'm not doubting. I'm not trying to say it should or shouldn't be in. What I'm trying to shed light on is that it's a, it's like judging in a surf contest. It's subjective what gets put in here. There's oh. some certain things that when he was doing this, let's say 1992 or whatever it was, right, there was people like maybe the number two surfer in the world that were like, oh, we got to put her in. But right. in historical hindsight, 30 years later, we look at it and we go, who's that? And do they really deserve to be in over Sally Fitzgibbons or, you know what I mean? So like the Pan American Surfing Association, does that need to be in? I think it's important. Yeah. I, I mean, what the about more, the Didier more, Pitter? Does Didier Pitter need to be in here? <laughs> I think there's the more, the better in a sense, like those things, by the way, Scott's holding up the encyclopedia of surfing book which I think a lot of there it current, is. I'll speak so that they can see it. There's a, I was anyway, it's, it's fun thing to do is to look through it and to debate it. And I again, think it was something that Matt and I did with Sam George for about four hours in a car ride to a point where Matt basically eventually said, you know what guys, stop it. I'm not yeah. doing this anymore. I think a lot of current listeners think of the encyclopedia of surfing website, but yeah, it started as a book originally, um, which the website was probably, uh, majorly made up of when he launched the website again let me state that i'm okay with didier pitter being in but if he's in then you need somebody that there's so many like obscure didier pitters in the world but at some point you you know you where do you draw the line i guess is this kind of like mount rushmore it's like where do you draw the line is this rant in relation to dennis jarvis's post on instagram this weekend no no what i don't even know what you're speaking of literally dennis jarvis posted this exact same rant but uh, basically griping that he wasn't included and a lot of the uh, South Bay's kind of finest were not included considering that Matt's from the South Bay. Yeah. Um, and saying exactly what you're saying, which is like, hey, why 
these other people are included, but we aren't, and we all grew up together and all that sort of stuff. But honestly, I think it ultimately comes down to is Matt's a one man show and how he's adding stuff all the time. Uh, certainly you're right. You should probably prioritize the way things are added, but even that would require a certain amount of uh, time and organization to be able to do that. So I think he's working at, you know, no, no, no. Reasonable I'm not, speed and I agree. I'm not, I, like I said, Matt's a treasure to everything that is surf culture and surf history. And, and um, I've referenced his stuff probably more than anyone. You know, yeah. I, I do it all the time and I love it. And I'm so glad that it exists. I just wanted people to know that, that, um, you know, it was a fun car ride, you know, and I, it was one of the funnest surf trips I've ever had because I, I got, three hours next to Matt Warshaw and I got to pick his brain. It was yeah. super cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, like you said, big show today, Hawaii. Dude, Mavericks is going off right now. It's just like, it's so much better than a couple of days ago when it was big. It's like, it's mean. You're going to see some mean footage from Mavericks. This is going to be a double XL swell for, for Mavericks as far as, you know, as far as footage and content that we're going to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah, um, Hawaii. So I watched the girls yesterday, believe it or not. I do. I do believe um, it. The Maui Pro, presented yeah. by Roxy. Yeah. I watched some of that, and I watched um, – what did What's I think overall, of that? overall blush? Um, I was excited to see comp competitive surfing. I was stoked for it. Um, I, I found myself being hypercritical of the judging. And that's the kind of way that where you can be hypercritical, you know, that it's such a beautiful um, palette. It's so, it's such a great um, canvas for the surfers to work with that it's, it's easy to be kind of, like I say, hypercritical of the judging overall. I thought they did a great job. There was one or two things. I thought Nikki Van Dyke surfed better than Sally Fitzgibbons, but again, you know, we're nitpicking here. I just thought her style was way better. She was just a better surfer. I think if, if you looked at it without the um, sort of umbrella of we need to judge points per turn here or whatever it is they're using, I would just say to you, I'd much rather have my daughter surf like Nikki Van Dyke than surf like Sally Fitzgibbons, who looked a little chaotic and not quite as flowy and as beautiful. Yeah, it's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Um, firstly, the worldsurfleague.com does not have the heat analyzer anymore. So it's very difficult to go back and analyze what you just said in hindsight. Mm -hmm. uh, I watched the event in real time, but it was on a second computer with the volume off because I was working. So I was just glancing kind of, if somebody caught a wave, I would turn the volume up to hear the commentary. So I missed that exchange. Um, and I, again, I went back at the end of the day to try to actually see some of the more important kind of um, breakdowns and it's nearly impossible. They do, they do allow you to rewatch the full heats and then they also offer a condensed version, but even the condensed version is 12 minutes long. So it's a lot of sitting and watching. Um, the other one that I heard some questions about was Betty Lou Sakura Johnson versus Carissa Moore. Do you remember watching that? I did not see that heat. It was the first of the um, woman on woman heats after the three, person heats and Betty Lou Johnson or Betty Lou Secura Johnson is kind of this up and comer uh, out of Oahu who 
Carissa Moore actually has worked with kind of in a mentor role and mm-hmm. Ross Williams is working with as a coach. So there's a lot of hype around her and she fully delivered, like wasn't at all nervous surfing against Carissa, her mentor. And I saw people arguing that she actually should have won that heat. Yeah. Again, analyzing, kind of critiquing the judges, um, judging, but you know, I didn't see it. Chris is obviously, you got to, if you're going to beat the champ, you got to knock out the champ. And I don't think she did. I think it came down to like pretty fractional differences between the two. Michael Ciamarella just penned a piece on stab 17 minutes before ago, before we started recording. And the overall, his overall impression was just that the surfing all looks the same. Women surfing Honolulu, there's not enough distinction between any of the women. And I think that's kind of a fair criticism. Uh, a Stephanie Gilmore aside. I, I, okay, there was a, I think the last heat of the day was Malia Manuel versus Carissa. Yeah. And Carissa Moore did a turn on one wave that was just insane. Really? That was that was far and away the best surfing that I'd seen. And I watched a lot of it. My daughter and I watched you know, numerous heats. And it was, it was just, it was an incredible turn. It was kind of like, you know, it was just an insane gouging hack, full rail, release the fins, come back into the white water, like just a full on, a fully committed and stylish and controlled, powerful rail hack, fin release back to the rail into the white water. You know, like it was sick. So, I'm sure Michael saw that, you know, and I would suggest to you that that one particular wave was far and away the best wave I'd seen surfed. I think what he meant was more in regard to style and approach. Like the women all kind of have at that wave anyways, all have the same approach. They're aiming for the exact same turn in the exact same place. And so there's a real homogeneity among the tour. And, um, I think that that criticism is actually fairly accurate. I agree with you though, like Chris is better at it than most. And the one thing I noticed from watching the first couple of rounds with her was her board seemed too long and didn't seem as um, just as good as the board that she won the event on last year. I remember last year she was riding like a rounded pin and all of her turns look so round. And that turn that you're describing right now, I remember her doing multiple of those last year that were just seared into my consciousness. And she wasn't connecting with that turn in the early rounds. And it felt like her board just was two inches too long. It looked like maybe a squash tail. And they're just, she wasn't like, she didn't have, find the rhythm in the board. Maybe she thought the waves are going to be bigger than they ended up being. Um, so I'm glad to hear that she finally kind of tied it together towards the end of the well, I, I would suggest too that that wave dictates kind of that you're going to see a lot of the same stuff you know i mean yeah. you're going to race you're going to take off race down the line you have an opportunity to pull in or go around it and do a hack and then you're going to yeah. race some more and, and you know i mean it could be argued that pipeline offers the same sort of you know homogeneity that michael's speaking of in the sense that look, we're going to take off late behind the peak and pull up high into the tube and get as barreled as we can. And get. And it's going to be, you know, so it's, it's kind of at this point, it's, it's minute degrees and nuance that's going to separate everyone. And I think that would be the same for the guys, although you would probably see some air game, which would yeah. make 
would which would make a difference. I think Sally went for a little air, and I think you're right too. She went for like 15 of them, yeah, in a row, and didn't oh, make really? any of them. Oh yeah. no. Well, so I think you're right, and at that size too, because like if Honolulu is small, you can do tricks, you know. And if it's big, then there's more canvas to kind of. Um, I don't know, showcase your own unique talent on. But at this size, it does kind of compress the options. What are your thoughts on uh, who's the standout surfer? Let me put it that way. Well, I thought Carissa was the standout from what I saw. I did not see the Betty Lou early round heat. Um, Carissa looked super solid. And frankly, Sally Fitzgibbons looked competitively solid. You know, mm-hmm. like she's she's got her A game. I'm not a... And I, I again, I think Nikki Van Dyke surfs um, with more fluidity and more rhythm and more flow than what I saw from Sally. Sally looked a little, yeah. And I, Sally always does. Nikki Van Dyke of. was, I know she does. And yeah. Nikki Van Dyke was like flowing, like more, more, just like I said, way that I would want to surf or that I would want to see my daughter or my son surf like, like just good style. You know, yeah. and I and I and style gets kind of put on the back seat under this sort of, um, you know, this quasi, you know, speed speed power flow. That's what style is. That's what they always try to tell you. Style is just speed power and flow. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't know. I I agree uh, about I'm being. I'm, nit- I'm nitpicking, I guess. I think the one name you haven't mentioned was the absolute standout to me, Tyler Wright. Yeah. I only saw one of her heats. I saw like sort of a wrap up of it. Was it the one with a 10? Yeah, where she got tubed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she got a 10 and an 833 against Stephanie Gilmore and beat Steph. Yeah. Uh, and Tyler Wright. She looked like rocked up and ready to kick some ass. I honestly. Like, her physique looked insane. I, I honestly feel like I've never. Um, wanted to throw my money on a world champ potential at the beginning of the season on event one day one. But honestly, I looked at Tyler Wright and I go, Oh, she's winning a world title this year aside. Like as long as COVID doesn't ruin the rest of the season or she doesn't get injured or whatever, like she is the pick. And I talked in the past about um, there not being enough drama on the women's side. And that's kind of why it's not, why we're not drawn to watch it. And then my caveat to that was, you know, Courtney, Conlog actually kind of brings some ferocity. I feel like she's kind of, she's willing to speak her mind. She's not interested. She doesn't seem to be interested in making friends on tour. Like she'll focus on just throat stomping people. I don't know. I've changed my mind. Courtney's kind of softened up and Tyler Wright, who all the way already has, I think two world titles, by the way. Um, she looks poised for a brand new phase of her career. Like she won those titles on talent and probably some tenacity, but now she looks like she's got this steely eyed eye of the tiger that I don't remember her having before. And it's probably in relation to her being sick for a year, coming off of injury, reevaluating life and coming back more fit than she ever was before, as you noted. And her surfing, is not to be reckoned with like it's next it's at it's on that same echelon i'd say as carissa and steph yeah i think you make great points about her i totally agree the post heat the sort of wrap-up interview i saw with her she looked extremely mature and professional and focused and like 
um, like a young professional with a, on a mission, as you mentioned, um, and all of these things. She, it's almost like she had her letting go moment um, with her illness and everything, and, and and she came out of this a much stronger and better competitor. The only thing I I you know she's she's almost flawless surf wise, but I'm not a big fan. There's some there's some bumps, there's some bumps in her giddy up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's a little, she could be smoother in my yeah. opinion. She's I think Carissa good. has her there, obviously. Um, Steph. Steph, but, but Steph doesn't hold a candle to her as far as like progressive surfing and power and, and, and tenacity, you know? Um, I hate to even say, I agree with you, but I hate to even say that about Steph because she's got, what seven world titles and it's like but i would argue that tyler is more competitively savvy it's almost like steph didn't have the opposition that you know tyler wright maybe has and so steph was able to get a few world titles based on just being the best surfer in the world but at this point i feel like tyler's competitive savvy will trounce stephanie gilmore at every event on tour so steph will need to step up yeah, I would suggest perhaps, and maybe somebody can chime in. Somebody like Dave Prodan would know this better, but Steph did have a run where she was kind of like Slater, where they, everyone, yeah. all the rest of the competitors were like, oh, my God, Steph's insane. She's unbeatable. She's so good. And they all kind of looked at her with um, the eyes of, um, you know, like a mentor. And, yeah. and, and it was hard for them to overcome that mentally, you know, whereas now they're all kind of on equal footing. Steph's obviously on the backside of her career. So everyone's like, Look, she's gettable. Steph's beatable. Yeah. You know, there's other people I got to deal with. And so, um, yeah, I would suggest I, you. So I feel like the way that competitors were treating Steph during those years might be the way that people start looking at Tyler. Tyler looks unflappable. And if you were going to compete against her, I feel like it would be intimidating. Yes, I agree. And, and, and you might have to meet that intimidation with some intimidation of your own. Agreed. You know, um, Agreed, so, yeah. but the only surfers in my mind that have the same talent are Carissa Moore and Stephanie Gilmore, and I don't see either of them stepping up to like go nose to nose and stare down Tyler. I, I see Tyler being able to get the edge on them mentally. What about Malia Manuel? No, mentally doesn't. I think she, no, she doesn't have that. I love Malia Manuel to be honest, yeah. but I she's just not at the same level. Uh, talent yeah. wise or competitive wise as those other girls. I think you're right. I think if Tyler Wright wins, which could very well happen, you're going to see her march through the rest of the year and maybe not even lose a contest. Like the rest of, that's, that's how steely she looked. You know what I, I mean? Really, I feel the same way. Yeah. So another highlight for me of this event was being able to see some of these rookies. Um, Isabella Nichols, I really think is amazing. Um, she was featured in that surf film that Travis Foray put together earlier in the year. I think it was just called Surf Film. And I remember her being a standout. I was like, I've seen her a little bit here and there, but her free surfing was pretty amazing. And she fully delivered uh, in the heat or two that I saw of her. And uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing more from her. I think that'll be a much needed kind of, I don't know, um, You're fresh right. blood. Yeah, that's one of the things about the women's tour that's kind of fun this year is that there is there does seem to be some younger women that are nipping at the heels that are worthy, you yeah. know, as opposed to like, you know, falling on every third turn or whatever. Which, by the way, Tatiana Weston Webb, when she got on tour as a rookie, that's exactly how I felt about her. She just hasn't really delivered on her 
rookie year potential. And Caroline Marks did that when she came on tour. And now she's going to have to kind of step up if she wants to stay in that top three conversation. So. uh, Speaking of women surfing, I'm not sure if you saw this, but um, let me see if I can pull this up. While you're looking for it, we're in the semifinals for the women's event. Um, Yeah. There's only five heats left. Tyler versus Sally in semi one. Carissa will surf against whoever wins the final heat of the quarterfinals, which is Sage Erickson and Tatiana Weston Webb. Wow. So Tatiana's got some gumption. I could see her mentally challenging, um, you know, has the tenacity that could challenge um, Tyler. Tyler. You're right. She wouldn't back down from the stare down. Right. But she will fall on a wave. Yeah. That's she been was kind of t- ripping yesterday, though. She, say. That's the thing. She absolutely shreds, but she falls. Like, she can put together a couple of sevens and eights for heats, and then when it matters, she'll put one eight up, and she'll get a set wave and then fall on it every time. That's been her kryptonite. Well, we are going to be focusing um, on the men here pretty heavily as the pipe event gets underway, I believe, probably today. <clears throat> I don't know. But yeah, the uh, inaugural Red Bull Magnitude has, has sent out a press release. It's a big wave video contest offering $40,000 to water women that perform the best in the largest, heaviest surf hitting the Hawaiian Islands during a three-month window, December 1st to February, end of February. It could be Jaws. It could be Waimea. It could be some sketchy outer reef. But it's got to be huge, sustained 15-foot Hawaiian minimum to get a seat at this table. And without the time constraints of a traditional in-person event, it puts a new emphasis on local knowledge and gives us three months to pick our days, ride the best waves at the best times. And with film crews are provided, David, film crews provided for the women. It removes the stress of coordinating with shooters and allows us to focus on our surfing. Competitors, by the way, have the option of using their own crew if they prefer to. But to the Red Bull magnitude, so um, this podcast turning into a, a discussion about women surfing, which I don't know, is that a little bit of vomit I see in your mouth right there that's dribbling out the side of your, right there? As far as I remember, I've never delineated whether or not this was a male specific podcast or female. You're the one who skirts every female surfing topic that I have to bring up. So no, it is not vomit. Uh, I'm woke. I don't know about you. You are. Yeah. I've had my coffee. Feeling um, awake. So I, I like the concept a lot. I think it's fantastic. I think at 40,000 bucks, it's a no brainer for Red Bull just in marketing. Like that's worth the marketing expense alone, but it also will yield exactly what we want to yield. You know, it'll yield kind of, I don't know, the, it's enough incentive, by the way, 40,000 bucks is enough incentive for those girls to actually, like they're already out there trying to be on the best swells anyways the forty thousand bucks is just enough to really uh elevate it to that next level and ensure that those waves are being filmed and that you have the filmer on the beach and all that sort of stuff yeah i agree it's perfect i think it's a grand opportunity for there were some names uh, they so they sent out some imagery too with some surfers you can find it on surfline i believe but there were some girls who frankly i'd never heard of but i'm sure charged and they're you know hawaiian are out there and have been for many, many seasons. But it's an opportunity for them to kind of go, hey, I'm here to wave the flag, get one of the most insane waves. And oh, by the way, could be really, really marketable yeah. from, um, from a brand perspective. And all of a sudden, 
you know, get swooped up and just be able to like convey a certain uh, aura or persona that maybe Audi or whoever is like, I don't want this person to represent my brand and, totally. and things, things could go in a great way for them, but we'll see. Totally. I'm for it. Um, speaking of digital switching things over to kind of a video digital version of the contest, the triple crown goes digital. So instead of Hooters scaffolding priority flags, uh, it's just going to be filmers on the beach. The two best waves on celluloid from each of the three locations that we're already used to Holly, Eva, sunset and pipe are going to uh, dictate who wins the triple crown this year. So registration starts on the 10th of this month. And it's actually, it appears to be open to anybody, uh, not just current competitors of the WSL, but there's only 125 slots available. So on December 10th, if you are just a regular surfer who surfs those spots all the time on the North shore, you can register on the triple crowns website and then the contest window runs from December 21st to January 18th. And you just film your waves. You submit two waves from each of the locations. And I didn't see anything about how they're going to be judged, but ultimately the waves will be judged and somebody will be deemed the winner. There's $200,000 in prize money. I guess first place gets 50,000. Um, I'm not sure how the rest of it is dispensed, but what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, this is one of those disruptor things that COVID's created. And I, I could see this being the future of the Triple Crown. Them not having to hassle with all the Triple Crown headaches of, oh, a QS guy didn't get into the pipe event, so how can you call it a Triple Crown if he doesn't get, you know, all those little headaches waiting for a swell window. Oh, the waves at Hollyiva were shitty because we had Hollyiva, you know, early in the season when there weren't as many west swells, there was more north swells, and we need a west swell for Hollyiva and blah, blah. All of that stuff, all of those headaches get removed. You have a filtered down, high performance, you know, multi-month triple crown. I, I, I guess it's one month long. How long is it waiting? Four weeks, the, yeah. Four weeks, yeah. So I think it's kind of cool. And I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if this is actually the new paradigm for the triple crown, because um, I think they'll get more marketing mojo out of it. Way less cost. You know, they don't have way to less. set up on the beach. Totally. And way less obstruction. Like the setup on the beach, it obstructs the locals, you know, yeah. the regular surfers who want to do it. Like it, traffic. traffic, like yeah. it's just a hassle. It is. And I guess for us as viewers, I think it is kind of nice being able to know like today pipe master starts and we can kind of log on. Like there's a certain entertainment value for people sitting around the world on their computers, but I don't think it's to, worth all of the. To me, Holly Eve is one of those waves. It's kind of like Lamore in the essence that it's probably the funnest wave to surf, but it's one of the worst waves to watch. Mm. That's the way I feel about Holly Eve. Unless so, it's just insanely yeah, good. If it's pumping, it's yeah. If it's twelve foot glassy west swell, you know, yeah, then okay, it's mind blowing. Do you want to throw a name or two in the ring for your prediction for who's going to win this thing? Oh God, I'm so out of the loop on who's super red hot and you know, the QS, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be QS. That's well, I know. That's my point is like, there's guys that there's guys that are surfing on the North shore who are 18 years old, who have never done a QS who could win this thing. You know, like there's names I, that might come out of nowhere. You that's true for Holly Eva. I don't know that that's super true for sunset and it's less true for pipe as well. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think Jack Robinson is going to 
is going to be a part of this? So Jack could win. Yes, I do think he'll be a part of it. And I think he could win Sunset easily. He's who do you put your money on for Sunset? And I think that he could win Pipe. But So when there's a huge he, I don't west know if, swell, he's going to go surf Holly Eva and not surf Pipe. No. Right. That's my exactly. point. So, so, okay. So who... So who are you narrowing it down to then? Who would make that decision? I don't know. I just think those are some of the, the those are some like, who, you know, like um, I could see, believe it or not, I don't know if he's got it in him. I, I think he's, Jamie O'Brien is a guy that can do really well at all three of those things, could line up a killer video guy and just go and make a plan, you know, yeah. and go, boom, I'm, I've got pipe in my bag and I can, I can absolutely kill it at sunset. And of course I could see him going, you know what? Let's skip pipe until the afternoon when it's lower tide and better winds or whatever. Let's go to Hollywood and let's win the triple crown. I mean, that's and maybe, he, and, and he I don't even know if he's got that in him right now. I think he's got enough revenue streams that he doesn't yeah. need it, but, but that would, you know, I mean, it's, it's so wide open. It's kind of fascinating, right? It is. No, it's very fascinating. And it'd be fascinating if a video blogger, a vlogger actually <laughs> was the one who was able to execute this because it kind of lends itself to them. They're the ones who already have the infrastructure set up. Mason. Um, Yeah. Mason. That's a great pick. Actually. I was thinking Griffin Colapinto. Griffin. He's got the vlog thing already set up. He absolutely shreds at Holly Eva and you know, he's no slouch at those other two locations either. I feel like he won rookie of the year in the triple crown a few years back even. Um, so true, though, the that, other, the other right. one would be John, John Florence. Okay. So what, what interests me about this is that I think we've agreed that it's going to have to be the guy that's like, I want, I'm focusing on winning the triple crown. I think that's the mindset that this person has to have. And they have to have a plan. They have to have a plan for pipe, a plan for sunset and a plan for Holly Eva. Yeah. I don't think you can just go, yeah, I guess I'll try that. Oh, let's go to Holly Eva and see that. You kind of got to like, strategize it out and well so that's the guy who's going to surprise us i would say jamie and john john are a shoe-in for pipe they already have a plan for pipe because it's the plan they've been doing for 20 years they're gonna and they paddle out there and they can get any wave they want so that already puts them in priority over somebody like griffin colapinto griffin colapinto is going to have to struggle to get the two best waves at pipe whereas john john and jamie are gonna they're gonna be on it so let's just say they get the two best pipe clips automatically. They need a strategy maybe for Sunset and Holly Eva. And I think like Jack Robinson is one who could also be kind of a shoe in for pipe. And he's somebody who would go paddle and surf Sunset when it's pumping. Whereas maybe John John or Jamie would opt to stay at pipe. Like John, uh, Jack would opt to surf uh, Sunset or would choose to surf Sunset. Hollyva would be the one variable for all. Got a name for you that just popped in. It's not. It's not. Frederico Marias. <laughs> Wade on Carmichael. the tip of my tongue. No, I was thinking Nathan Florence. Here's a guy yeah. who has in- infrastructure. Um, will ha- can get a killer backdoor wave. Can kill it at sunset, obviously, and um, and has the local know-how to go surf Hollyva because Hollyva is probably the. I mean, it's is it the most difficult wave to surf? Relative to those other two, no, but it's it's a unique way in far, as far as the current and stuff. Like, So anyway, Nathan Florence, and he's a Vans rider. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a great pick. That's a great kind of uh, pick that wouldn't win the Triple Crown 
in a competitive season, you know, right. like a proper form, uh, traditional competitive season. And I sort of, I bet I can speak for you on this. I would sort of hope that that's who wins the Vans Triple Crown this year is a guy that's yeah, me too. Not like you know, Felipe Felipe Toledo or something. You well, know, like somebody somebody, somebody who's an equally as talented surfer whose surfing doesn't fit within the boundaries of you know, winning yeah. every every lower round heat. Right. Uh, well, looking at pipeline, yes. which is set to start today, they're going to run the trials event uh, first. Owen and Ace have withdrawn from competition, Scott. Holy shit. Hold that thought. I got to change <laughs> I got to change my fantasy surfer team. <laughs> Are you serious? All right. Scott has left the building. No Owen Wright. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> I I mean, I have to presume this is COVID related. I have zero information, but I How'd have to find this out. Did it come out of the WSL? Yeah, I found it on their website. Um, huh. They there was no formal announcement. I was reading. Oh, actually, I was reading about um, the Mikey Wright and Leo Fioravanti injury wildcard, which I'll explain in a minute. And at the very bottom of the article, it said, "Well, good news because whoever doesn't win the wildcard actually will probably get in because Owen and Ace just." withdrew and they'd be next in line they'd be the first replacement so i was like oh and an ace withdrew and then i went and looked at the heat draw and sure enough they withdrew so no information as to why no formal announcement as of yet but how could i mean i was arguing for i don't know the last month not everybody's going to make it to hawaii considering covid protocols you would just statistically argue that not everybody is going to make it and so the fact that two guys who should be there and are actually viable contenders at pipe withdrew makes me think that would be the logical answer. Hmm. Yeah. Bummer though. Cause Owen was actually on my, uh, world surf league fantasy team. That's what I'm doing. I'm only doing world surf league this year. I'm not doing uh, I, I didn't sense that surfer magazine was in existence. So you're not doing survival league. No, I'm doing survival league too mm -hmm. but i'm also doing the wsl fantasy and i'm know, in a group I with know. a bunch of just making sure because you just said i'm only doing the wsl oh not no, only no. the wsl you're also doing surf vival uh referral code spit by the way right and i can't tell you who that my pick is because i don't want to give it away i mean you I think and i have can. such inside info can't we at this point because by the time people listen to this the event will have started um let's just go for it i'm down <laughs> Okay. On the count of three. Just <laughs> no, first of all, are you going to tell the truth? Put your hands I, in the air so you're not crossing your fingers. I swear I will reveal the truth. I swear I will reveal the truth. Okay. Ready? You go first. Kelly Slater. Oh. All right. What do you got? Seth Moniz. Interesting. I know. It's kind of a roll of the dice. Not really, but it's not the easy pick. For well, Biden. he's not going to win the event. That's fine. Is it? Yeah. I'm aiming. I'm aiming to win every single event. Well, look. All I got to do is get through round of thirty-two, right? No. Oh. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you want to stay involved in the survival yeah. league for the rest yeah. of the season, but and if Seth gets through, that keeps Kelly in the picture for G Land or for Chopes. Okay, so explain your rationale with picking Seth. He's a local. He's been surfing there for decades. Or at least two decades. <laughs> He's not even two decades years old. <laughs> Maybe one decade. 
my point is, is that he's in the water right now. He was in the water yesterday. Like I wanted to pick a local guy that's in the water that didn't just show up and is trying to get a few waves under his belt before his first heat. Uh, I know there's others that fit that criteria, yeah, but yeah. Seth is one of them. Mike, so I, you, everything you said is true. I guess my only caveat is I would want to pick somebody who could potentially win the event. Why? It doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. I don't think you know how the Survival League works. Oh, really? I, th- I didn't think it mattered. I thought you just had to pick one that got through. Oh, I thought it was. I thought there was points attached to your win. Like, if I, if Kelly, maybe you're right. Maybe I just. Yeah. You're right. You just got to get through. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. See, Doesn't I matter. thought. I thought if you and I come out of this and Kelly ranked higher than Seth, then I have more points than you going into the final. Or into well, into the next event. I don't. Maybe you're right. I'm not sure. I'm not positive that I'm right, but that's how I do NFL survival leagues. Yeah, yeah. All you got to right. do is pick the guy that gets the that wins. Like you don't, the, you know. Yep. It gets you're absolutely through. right. You're absolutely right. That is the way that works. So maybe. Uh, okay. Uh, so my pick. You're right. So my pick with Kelly was. I think Kelly could absolutely win the event, and especially if the waves are pumping. And I don't think that Kelly is as um uh likely to win a lot of the other events on tour like you said maybe glan but i think there's actually better picks at glan and then chopu would be the other event that i would want to save kelly for because for listeners who aren't familiar with the survival league uh you can only use a surfer once in a season so now that i've used kelly i can't use him again so chopu would be the only other location that i would use him for um so I might regret this, but I'd also use John John for Chopes. I'd use Gabriel Owen for Chopes. If Owen makes it to Chopes, I'd use him. Yeah. So, but all right, well, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyways, Owen and Ace are out. Do you remember Mickey, or I'm sorry, Mikey Wright and Leonardo Fioravanti were injured? And it was a question. They were injured last year, and it was a question of who would get the injury wildcard spot going into this season. Because we know John John's certainly going to get one. And by the way, John John requalified anyways without even needing it. But essentially, here's a recap. Mikey has been dealing with a back injury that kept him out of the water for several months while Leo dislocated a shoulder. Uh, also dry docking him for a while. So Mikey just won the Boost Mobile Pro on the Gold Coast, kind of one of these um, lead-up events to the season. Leo won the last major WSL event before the COVID hiatus, which I think was the Sydney Surf Pro. So both have proven on multiple occasions that they are CT-level surfers. Neither of these athletes are pipe novices. Um, but both have kind of a bittersweet history with the wave. Leo actually broke his back out there in 2015. One of the several injuries that he's come back from Mikey injured his back of the Vulcan pipe pro in 2018. That injury aggravated was aggravated at bells and then Margaret river. And he ended up withdrawing from the tour for 2019. So they're basically giving these two guys, they're going to make it them surf it out to decide who gets the wild card spot into this season. And they're going to do potentially three heats. The first of these matchups will take place uh, between the first and second rounds of the local trials event. So today, presumably, and then the second heat will be between the semifinal and the final. And if needed, they'll run a third heat on the first day of the main event. 
And while it certainly feels like a must win for each of these competitors, the loser will actually get the first replacement spot uh, for the 2021 season. And um, so we're probably going to see them both surf in multiple events throughout the year, regardless. And like I said, Mikey, uh, whoever loses will actually still get to surf in pipe. No, without a problem because Owen Wright and Ace already withdrew. So really this surf off is to secure the spot for the rest of the season, but they'll both get to surf pipe. Wow. Cool. That's, that's good insight. Did you find that on WSL's website or did yep. they send a PR? About that? They, they did not send a press release. It was just on their website, huh. which is not easy to uh, navigate by the way. Yeah, I know I'm on it right now. It's yeah. Uh, well, what else you got, Scott? Dude, the Surf Lakes pool, I'm sure you saw the video that they released right after our show last week yeah. of um, the Surf Lakes wave pool technology, the Mad Max looking plunger. They have done some upgrading to this thing and they put out a 13 minute documentary showing the latest sort of R&D session they had with a bunch of different surfers. And that wave and that plunger and the amount of waves looks pretty sick. And I, I've got a, a tip of the cap, if you will, to the Surf Lakes technology and the engineers because, you know, in the past I've sort of poo-pooed it as just like sort of this <laughs> menacing looking thing that if it broke, you'd, you'd see some dude pull up in an old pickup truck with some overalls and, a, you know, a, a greasy beard and pull out a, like some sort of plumber's wrench and try to fix this thing. <laughs> but it, it certainly looks incredible and the, the edit i'm sure everyone's seen it is it's pretty fascinating so tip of the cap to the surf lakes pool and yepin and also it looks like um probably the most fiscally viable too just in terms of how many people they could fit in the pool on a variety of different waves you know yeah so agreed. and that that also would bring down the cost per wave uh for the user as well like for a client it's probably not going to be nearly as expensive as a day at Surf Ranch. <laughs> depends how much energy it costs to, to drop that plunger. Yeah, totally. But that thing is in, pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, by the way, you said you were on the Surf uh, World Surf League website. Do yeah. you have any information at all in who the trialists are that are competing in the event? I mean, if I go to events... Even the events tab is a, kind of a nightmare. It makes you jump through one or two things. Um, it also, the f weird thing is it says the pipe master starts in 14 hours. That is not accurate at all, that timer. No, it's uh, not accurate. There, I do have the seating round here up. Okay. See, and, I was just curious who the trialists are, and I wasn't able to find it on my own. Uh, hmm. Do you got anything? I don't have, I do, I'm sorry, I do not have it. I'm at a cool. loss. So I am at, I am at, by the way, it looks like the heat analyzer is enabled on the Pipe Masters website, but it was not enabled on the uh, Maui Pro website. So I'm on the I'm on the Pipe Masters page right now, and it's only showing yeah the seating round, which is all the CT competitors. It's not showing any trialists. So yeah, that's annoying. I would like okay. to know who is competing. Um, my must see moment, Scott. Yeah, I bet this has fallen through the cracks for most people. And it's a real shame because it's actually amazing. Yes. Dana Brown's new documentary about his father. Oh, were you aware yeah. of this? 
I was aware. I actually interviewed Dana for this, um, you know, I want to say like last year or yeah. something. Um, but yeah, I was aware of it. And certainly he is a guy, Dana Brown, Bruce Brown, Dana Brown's father, Bruce, is a guy that's in the talks when we speak of the Mount Rushmore of surfing. So um, tell me about it. It's called A Life of Endless Summers, The Bruce Brown Story. It is available on Amazon Prime. Um, there's, I think it's $3.99 to rent, but you can add on like a subscription for some package with a seven-day trial to watch for free and then just cancel the trial before you get billed for it. It's phenomenal. Um, it's really well done. So much historical footage that you haven't yet seen is included, but it's all centered around a road trip that Dana did with his father to go visit all of his father's old friends. Uh, Gordon Clark, Jack O'Neill, Jerry Lopez. There's a bunch of footage of Hobie Alter included in it as well. Um, apparently, uh, Bruce's wife of 40 years or so passed away a few years back. And Bruce really kind of just became a recluse. Like he didn't leave the house for a number of years. But he had such a vivid and colorful life for, you know, 40 years leading up to that. And he made friends all around the world, obviously had such tremendous influence with on any Sunday and the endless summer and all that stuff. And, um, so he developed all of these important lasting friendships with people that he ultimately had not maintenanced for the last, let's say decade. So Dana and his siblings decided, Hey, let's get dad out and do a road trip and go visit all of his old friends. And that's kind of the through line of the documentary. And then, of course, as they're visiting the old friends, like they're walking through Gordon Clark's house and Gordon Clark has all this memorabilia. And as he's pulling it out, it's like, oh, my God, I remember we got that from the bar that we went to when we were 25 and, you know, that we did karaoke or whatever. And um, and then, of course, Dana and his dad have all of this archival footage. So they'll kind of cut that stuff in as well. It's a really amazing historical piece and also just a love letter uh, from a son to his father. And I could go on and on. What I will say is that I haven't, up until this point, seen enough about Gordon Clark in my life. I always felt like he's a pretty mythical figure that there's a lot of stories about. There's more stories than there are like direct words from his mouth. And so it was really cool to be able to see him and kind of try to reconcile what my view of him is versus what he seems to be as a, as a person. Um, so it was fascinating. I loved it. Cool. I want to check it out for sure. Um, sounds like a one not to miss. So it is it. definitely one not to miss. What was your uh, look on your face when I was talking about Gordon Clark? You had a smirk. I, I agree. I just kind of agree with you. I think that there's a ton of stories. There's every time like I'll be with somebody, um, whoever it is, and they bring up a Gordon Clark story. There's always like this caveat, like, by the way, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want him to know that I told you about this story. <laughs> Do you um, have admiration for him? Absolutely. I think he's a, one of the most classic, guys ever like he's one of those guys that's sort of salty and curmudgeonly and and he's just a, a a vibrant part of the web that is um the surfing world you know he, yeah you know what i mean like 
I mean, look, it's easy to shoot holes in anybody, you know, but that's sort of the weak way out and, and sort of the easy way out. And everybody, as you always say, it's way more nuanced than that. And um, I think Grubby Clark, I think when I was at Surfer, we had him as one of like maybe the top in the top 10 is one of the most important persons in surfing, most influential people ever in surfing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, well, I, I, I only, I just think he's, he's a, he's a character that he's above reproach in my mind. Like, yeah, I could sit here and go, Oh, what about this? What about that? And toxic yeah. chemicals, blah, blah, blah. But in my mind, I, I'm not, I'm not the guy that has the uh, credibility to do that. I think he's above reproach. I, uh, I think about like, God, he'd be such a great podcast interview, but it wouldn't even be, it wouldn't do it justice. It would need to be like a six or eight part series in the style of like dirty John or the style of S town. These are important podcast series that were like investigative doing a deep dive into this one figure and the life that surrounds them and all the people that surround them. That's really what it would need to be. It would need to be interviews with everybody, people who worked with him, people kind of like the Dolly Parton one. Yeah. Dude, how good was that? that. Did we talk about that on air? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dolly Parton's America. Yeah. It was awesome. So good. Um, And by the way, we didn't talk about this, but, because of that relationship, that the host of that show, Jad Abumrad, the reason yeah. why he connected with Dolly was his dad is a surgeon who is working on Dolly, and so they became friends. But through that relationship, she ended up financing or you know investing in the COVID vaccine. She's one of the key financers of the COVID vaccine. That's so great. I know it's crazy. <laughs> Anyways, Martin. I know she's amazing. She's an American treasure. Uh, but at any rate, like Gordon Clark. So I don't know how he, many He's people... a treasure. He's a surfing culture treasure. So the stories that you and I are alluding to are a lot about why he got his nickname. His nickname is Grubby. It's a lot about him being curmudgeonly and just a really shrewd businessman, as I understand it. Just like I, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of pioneered this thing polyurethane foam for surfboard production. It revolutionized the industry. You guys owe me a debt of gratitude and I will supply you with your needs from this point on. And we're going to do it by my rules. And so that hard nose We need to back up a little bit here. Okay. Because to me, the most, the sort of foundational story about this is Hobie invented the foam, right? There was other guys that were inventing foam. Everyone was kind of tinkering with it. Hobie came up with, um, you know, his mixture, right? His recipe. And Grubby was working for Hobie. And Hobie was like, because Hobie was always one step ahead of the next thing. He might have been, at this point, he was kind of sick of dealing with foam. He's like, I want to go build airplanes or sailboats or whatever. He's like, Grubby, this thing's ready to go. It's all set. I want you to take over. I'm going to give you or sell to you the foam business. However, if I do it, you have to, for the life of your business, of you and I being in business, you have to sell me foam for $1 less than you sell to the rest of the surf world. And that was the deal they made, that Hobie Surfboards got Clark foam for cheaper than anybody else, $1 cheaper. And to me, that's sort of the foundational story it, of this whole thing. 100%. And I didn't mean to undercut that, but the point that I wanted to make was that 
Gordon's reputation became for being this kind of hard-nosed, shrewd businessman. Like yep. not cutting anybody any deals. I don't care how big of a client you are. And the fact that you even asked me a deal means you're cut off, you know? Like, Well, yeah. I mean, if he found out that you had, uh, like if his driver pulled up and saw other foam, yeah, it would get reported back to Grubby and Grubby wouldn't say anything to you. He just would never deliver you a phone. I mean, yeah, exactly. those are the types of things. And then if you called him or whatever, he'd just be like, why don't you use the Bennett foam and hang up on yours? So I'm a, I, by the way, these are all things I've made up. I don't know these. No, these are. These are hearsay, but you didn't yeah, make them up. It's all hearsay. It's all hearsay, but, but so, that's and, the kind of guy, you know, from and, a business and, standpoint, he was. And, and he, he had a monopoly on foam because of it. He all, like, really had a monopoly for all practical purposes. And so it mattered. If he said, I'm going to cut you off, it meant you couldn't run your business because you needed him. Anyway, all of that is kind of what you and I were referring to, but through this documentary, it paints a very more, a very much, very softer, more human uh, version. And I think a lot of people kind of soften as they get older anyway. So maybe he is a different version of himself than he was back in his business days. Um, but the one thing that Dana says is Gordon donated he was a philanthropist like he donated more money to good causes and a lot of them in the surf industry than anybody will ever know about and he always did it anonymously it was like whatever whoever needed money or a shaper that like fell on hard times or cancer or whatever he would just write the check anonymously never ask for anything from it so there's a lot of um altruism yeah, and sweetness, I think, that uh, was never reported through all of the hearsay that yeah. you and I have heard. Anyways, A Life of Endless Summers, the Bruce Brown story, it's on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend it. Great film, period. I mean, obviously, Dana Brown's a great filmmaker yeah. and phenomenal story. So, Yeah, I'm going to watch that. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's one that needs to be. Did you say Amazon Prime? Yep. Cool. Uh, my musty moment is simply a YouTube clip that I came across. It's called Big Wave Surfing Piahi Maui, Jaws Maui, December 2nd, 2020, raw clips by a guy named Jake Hauglum, H-O-U-G-L-U-M. And what's cool about this, David, is that it's, it's from a couple days ago when it was big at, at Jaws. And it's edited in such a way that it's just wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. Like they took out yeah. all the bullshit. So it's really tight and, and done properly and then there's just and the funny thing is is you just hear guys on the cliff yeah randomly in the background going oh who's that guy you know or whatever. and but again it's boom 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 there's wipeouts there's kite surfing there's insane stand-up surfing before the um wind got too crazy and there's obviously the great rides that we saw from billy kemper and kai lenny that sort of that combo back-to-back -back tube ride set that, that's been out there the other thing that's definitely worth watching is um, Griffin Colapinto's backside air that he ends up landing flat on the back of his board yeah. on his back and then gets back up and rides out of it. How crazy is that? Yeah, that's mind blowing. That was so cool. Griffin, maybe at like Ayukai or maybe Rocky Point or something, pumps down the line on the left, does a big backside air. His board becomes detached from him. So he ends up just like laying flat in midair preparing to splash into the water and the board, the wind pushes the board underneath his flat kind of um, coffin laying stance. 
and he lands back on the wave on his board, laying on his back, and then turns around and stands up on it again. It's remarkable. It's pure, number one, pure luck, but also luck that he didn't get damaged and that it just happened so gracefully and smoothly. Like it could have gone wrong a million different ways and it just happened to work out perfectly. Uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, I saw that. That's a cool thing on Instagram. And there's going to be, we're going to get an onslaught of content on Instagram and on YouTube from this swell. And of course we've got the pipe masters today. I believe it's going to run. I mean, I can give a quick um, check here. While you're, pipe. while you're doing it, I'm going to give you my Duke. Yes. Um, my Duke also came from an Instagram clip, but it reminded me of why this person is my Duke and it's Jadson Andre. Did you see the clip of him dodging, rolling in on a second reefer kind of in the whitewash with his head, you know, like covered in white water and then getting to his feet and dodging 12 different people throughout the ride. I didn't Did you see, see it. It's no. freaking, I'll send it to you right when we're done. It is unbelievable. Like as soon as he shakes his head clear of the water, there's two people duck diving, but with the tail of their board like sticking out of the water and then their board just getting blown by the white water and Jadson comes within inches of both of those. <laughs> then, then like as the second reefer like starts to, the white water like pushes onto the reef and it starts to like uh, suck up into the barrel. He's bottom turning and some body surfers dropping in on the barrel and Jadson's pulling up under the lip. So they then almost collide. They're both in the barrel. The body surfer gets evaporated presumably. And you presume maybe Jadson got taken out by the bodyboarder. Then the thing just spits and breathes and Jadson comes flying out of the barrel. It's freaking crazy. And he has to dodge people then on the exit as well. So Jadson's ability on that wave was heroic and really, really just like uh, he was playing by Braille because of the white water in his face at the beginning and he was able to navigate it flawlessly. But what it reminded me of is that every season, Jadson works his way back into becoming my favorite surfer. And then next season, I forget about him completely and I watch him on a wave and I go, ah, that guy's got crappy style and I don't like Jadson. But he is such a workman and gets so little accolade and then goes and does these heroic feats like that or will win an event, you know. Like time and time again, he works his way into becoming my favorite surfer every year. So I'm calling it right now at the beginning of the season, Jadson Andre, not only my Duke of the Week, but my favorite surfer of the year. Nice. Committed. Wow. Well, there's only a couple of weeks left, so you're not really going out on a limb too far. Exactly. That's my point. <laughs> all right. Well, I don't have a Duke or a kook, but... Um, That's all right. Are yeah. you... Uh, what's the water temperature like down there right now? 58 degrees. Does that warrant a 4.3 for you? It does. Yeah. 4.3 need essentials. I got a brand new need essentials 4.3. You got the, uh, the one it's with good. the thermo... Yeah. The super comfy warm one. Thermo insulator. Yeah wool blanket on your chest exactly yes very nice by the way i talked to rob at neat essentials earlier this week he said the jacket uh thing went really well he just moved from huntington beach warehouse up to santa barbara monday is their first official day in santa barbara so i was talking to him about that but he said that um that promo thing uh prima loft jacket 30 percent off promo code spit uh helped them get out of that warehouse and reduce that inventory so thank you to listeners hope that you enjoyed that yeah and of course you can get your surfers are the worst t-shirts 
That's staycovered.com. Very limited supply. We're running out. If you want to get one, get back now. Surfers are the worst t-shirts. Staycovered.com. You can pick up a leash or a board bag or whatever for Christmas as well. Awesome, Scott. Enjoy the Pipe Masters. Yeah, until next time, um, I'm sure I'll be texting you, but um, until then, adios and aloha. Aloha.